allow me again just to welcome you to worship at Christ Church in town. It's great to see everybody this morning. This morning we are continuing a sermon series uh, that we started last week on Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It's a beautiful uh, picture of the early church, the values and the activities that marked their life together. Because what we want to do is, in looking at uh, the marks of the first church, is to turn our ear and to listen to God's voice, to tell us who we are to be and what we're to become as a church as we seek to be this kind of uncommon fellowship that we see described in the book of Acts. In Acts 2.42, we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is a succinct description of the worship of the early church, that they were a community marked by worship. And so throughout this series, uh, I've had a few people ask, are you going to preach the entire series from those five verses? Um, They ask incredulously. And uh, and no, we're going to kind of take one of the values out of those verses this morning, worship, and then also look at another passage in the scriptures uh, that speak uh, to what our worship uh, is to be. And so if you would, if you're willing and able, would you please stand uh, for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is from Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 7. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, And you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. On a beautiful Sunday morning, uh, September 15th, 1963, as people gathered to worship at 16th Street Baptist Church uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, Among those who gathered uh, to worship that day uh, were four uh, beautiful little girls uh, dressed in their Sunday finest, who as they were walking up the steps uh, to worship were killed in a bomb blast. Uh, Members of the Ku Klux Klan had hidden 17 sticks of dynamite under the steps of the 16th Street Baptist Church, exploded, killed these four precious girls, wounded 22 others. Horrible day. Horrible, horrible day. Martin Luther King uh, preached the eulogy, uh, the funeral uh, for these little girls as their community put the pieces back together just a couple of weeks before his I Have a Dream speech. The eulogy as a whole is well worth your time. But here's what he says in part. He says, And no greater tribute can be paid to you as parents And no greater epitaph can come to them as children than where they died and what they were doing when they died. 
They did not die in the dives and dens of Birmingham, nor did they die discussing and listening to filthy jokes. They died between the sacred walls of the church of God, and they were discussing the eternal meaning of love. And this stands out as a beautiful, beautiful thing for all generations. It's long been uh, an object of study and questioning of why in history have hate groups, of white supremacist hate groups, uh, historically targeted above all other gathering places the black church. It goes on from the civil rights movement, from the bombings and the burnings of churches, all the way up to Mother Emanuel AME in present day, when a man walked in and shot. There have been all sorts of explanations, psychological explanations, that the way that the African-American church has historically been the safest place in the community And that in their hate, these white supremacists desire to ruin even that small uh, haven of safety. Perhaps that's the motivation. There's been sociological motivations that the, the church was the pillar of the black community. And if they could somehow strike at that pillar, then the sociological ramifications would strike fear in the heart. This morning, we're going to look at what I believe is a theological understanding for what goes on uh, in the hatred of the church, which is from the, from the beginning, from this story in Deuteronomy 12, we see a reality that the worship of the true God always comes into conflict against the idols of the age. That it always comes, the love of the true God, his love for us that's forged in the worship of the Christian church, always puts us in conflict with the false loves, the disordered loves, of the world around us. You see, the church was really the center of the civil rights movement. It was at the church that the meetings were hosted. It was at the church where the communities came together. It was in the worship and from the pulpits of the church that the community learned that they were, contrary to what they were told, contrary to what the white supremacists of the South told them, that they were the beloved of God. And once you come to believe that you're the beloved of God, the lies of the false loves of this world stop making sense to you. You stop being willing to tolerate them and to fall for them. And so the church became the center from which the movement radiated out. They would prepare in the church and then go into the neighborhoods and into the streets. They would go. And that is the way, whether it's in the 1960s South or whether it's in 2000 B.C. Canaan or whether it's in the the early church in the book of Acts, that this is always God's design for the worship of the church. That in the church we participate in God's love. That we learn it and we receive it and we come to form our identity as the beloved of God and we return his love. And out of that we begin to be able to resist the disordered loves of our age. We begin to push back and to protest the false gods that we confront in the world. In the passage that we read this morning from Deuteronomy 12, this is exactly what's happening. God has redeemed his people from Egypt. Remember those great stories of God setting his people free through his powerful work in the Exodus. And he sets them free and they cross over the Red Sea and they journey through the wilderness. And after 40 years, they come to the place finally of entering in to their promised land, entering into the land that God had given them. And as they prepare to go in, 
God has called them to worship him. He's given them the tabernacle. He's given them the law and how they should worship him. But as they prepare to enter the land, he tells them, you're not going into a place where you're going to be worshiping God in a vacuum. There are other people there who worship other gods and who worship their strange gods in strange ways. And so as you go into this place, you're going to experience pressure. You're going to experience what it means to to be called to worship the true God, but then also all around you to see people worshiping other gods. And seeing the worship of those other gods is going to put a pressure on you to look out and to say, well, I wonder wonder what our neighbors are worshiping. I wonder how he gets his crops to grow, how he gets the rain to come. And because of that temptation, what I want you to do is when you enter into this land, I want you to tear down all of the shrines and all of the temples and all of the monuments to other gods so that you can worship me, the only true God. Because what was happening in Canaan, in their religion, the religions of the, really it was multiple religions of their neighbors, the worship of idols was having a terribly dehumanizing effect on the people around. In verse 31, we didn't read it, uh, but in verse 31 of Deuteronomy 12, we learned that it was a common practice in these Canaanite religions for people to sacrifice their children to their gods, believing that that no amount of sacrifice was enough to appease these gods who had the power to give or to withhold rain, who had the power to give them victory in war or defeat, that in order to appease the gods and keep the gods on their good side, they would sacrifice their own children. Maybe if I sacrifice my firstborn, then the gods will not be angry and they'll be appeased enough that my other children will live, that my family will live, that my village will live. We learn elsewhere that their their religions were were shaped not just by child sacrifice, but by, um, by religious prostitution, that some women from an early age were brought into cult prostitution, believing that their fertility gods were somehow satisfied by these practices. Others would cut and mutilate themselves. And so we see that the worship of the false gods had an effect on these people of tearing down their humanity, of distorting the dignity and image of God that they were created in and wrecking havoc on their lives. And so in contrast to that, God says to his people, you're not to worship their gods. That's the first commandment, right? You're not to worship, have no other gods before me. But then secondly, you're not to worship me in these ways, right? You're not to think that I'm the kind of God who demands this level of human sacrifice or this level of sensuality, that I'm a God that you have to always worry about uh, appeasing. He says, no, you're to worship me in the way that I've given you. Israel's worship in their age was an uncommon worship. In a world where people had many gods, where there was a God over fertility and a God over war, a God over the stream and a God over the mountains, God told Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. They were a a fiercely monotheistic people who said, no, no, I go to one God for the needs of my life. There's one God before whom I'm accountable. Right, in addition, God gave uh, gave them commands. He gave them the law to show what loyalty and love and return to him was to look like. And so their life was to be shaped in prayer and in worship in submission to this one true living God, uncommon among their neighbors. Well, and that's exactly what we see happening again in Acts chapter 2. Remember, when these thousands of people hear the gospel, remember just previous to these verses, Peter, 
uh, preached the first Christian sermon at Pentecost. Thousands of people who heard miraculously the good news of Jesus in their own language. They came to him. They said, Peter, what should we do to be saved? He said, repent and be baptized. And so now they come together as a church. And we find them in the same way that God's people were as they entered into the promised land. That their response of gratitude for this new life that they've been given, for this rescue that God has brought into their life, is to join together and to worship. It's to worship in a way that was uncommon among all their neighbors. Right? The Christians, the early Christians, once again found themselves worshiping, not in a vacuum, but surrounded by other gods. Surrounded by the mythological uh, gods of Roman and Greek lore. Again, a polytheistic religion with gods that you always had to worry about. Gods that you had to wonder, were they on our side or were they not on our side? Gods that you had to appease through sacrifice. And so in the midst of that Roman and, and, and ancient Greek world, Christian worship stood out as unusual. Luke describes it in uh, Acts 2.42 quite simply. I think it would have stood out for the simplicity of the worship in the midst of a, a world of mighty uh, statues and temples and sacrifices. Luke describes their worship very simply as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Right in place of the mythological speculation of the Romans, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right, instead of, instead of volumes of books and stories and myths about how the gods came to be and how they live and, and what they do and the stories about which gods are married to who and who they like and how to get their favor on your side, instead of all that speculation, the early Christians told a simple story, the apostles' teaching. Jesus, the God-man, enters into history, lives, dies, and is resurrected giving forgiveness and new life. Instead of speculation, this was rooted in the teaching of apostles that were very much still alive and working and teaching in their fellowship. This resurrection was attested by living witnesses that would have been a part of these fellowships. And so instead of speculating about the world, what, what the eternal world out there is like, they said, no, no, it's like Jesus. The man that we knew, the man that we saw, the man that we touched, the man that even after his resurrection... We know because he's given us life. And so they rooted themselves in the gospel, in the fellowship. The, the Greek word there is koinonia. It's a powerful word that's used to describe the fellowship that Christ has brought between humanity and God and between the human family and one another. That they were experiencing this peace, this, this koinonia fellowship between themselves because of the cross. And so in a world of many gods, in a world where Caesar, uh, the Roman leader, claimed to be God, these early Christians gathered around this word, the story of the apostles' teaching, and they rooted their lives in it. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, a common meal, like we're going to share uh, a little later in our service. From a very early time, from the first centuries of the Christian worship, this meal was at the very center of their worship. Broken bread, shared wine, as a sign and a seal, as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We know that the early Romans, the, the Christians' neighbors, all thought that this part of the service in particular was crazy. Uh, they accused the early Christians of cannibalism, that they say they eat, the, blood, eat the, the flesh and drink the blood of their founder. 
these people are crazy. These people are cannibals. We want, what, do we, what do we make of these people? And yet still, this simple meal with profound ramifications was at the center of their early life. And then to the prayers. Just like God's people as they went into the promised land, were told to, to give God offerings in response and gratitude. The early church received from God the grace of the gospel and then they spoke back to him in songs and in psalms and in prayers. But their life was marked by this kind of easy, joyful intimacy with God, living in light of his love for them through the apostles' teaching, and then responding. You know, our world, uh, no less than theirs. You know, it's easy to say that, that the ancient Jewish worship, ancient Israelite worship, yeah, they didn't worship in a vacuum. There were all sorts of other gods all around them. Right, the, the early church... Surely in the midst of the Roman world, yes, there are other gods all around them. But what about us? Right, we worship uh, today, here, in a world where most Christians, most of you didn't wake up this morning and think to yourself, should I go to a church this morning or should I go to a Hindu temple? Right, you did, that, that, maybe some of you did, but for most of you that question was settled at some point in your life. Right? You didn't wake up and think, is today a day that I want to go to church or a day that I want to go to the mosque? Right? That you, by conviction, you are here. But we do worship just as much as these early, early Christians did in the midst of a world of competing gods. Right? Our world prides itself on being a secular age. Right? That we are a world where everybody's free to go about their own religious pursuits as much as they want. You can find your spiritual life wherever you'd find it. But we're in a world where we, we pride ourselves, and, and when we get together for our common life, it's a secular world. We don't, we don't talk about it. We don't shape our life or our common life or our culture by faith commitments. We live in a secular world. And yet, when you take away uh, the deity, when you take away uh, explicit religious commitments in a secular age, you don't get nothing. You don't get a vacuum. You get other loyalties and other gods vying for the worship that religion once occupied uh, in our world. Right? What, what gods come and take the place of the true God when our hearts move away from him? You know, just to, to list a few. Well, one that's very common is nationalism. Right? In the absence of the true God, our nation gets our ultimate faith, ultimate hope, and ultimate loyalty. Right, this is why, what's the number one move when a totalitarian dictator takes over a country? It's to get rid of religion. Because he wants no competitors for the loyalty, even the worship of his people. He demands to be their God. He demands that the state be their hope. And so religion goes away so that nationalism can rise to the front. Now this obviously works different in America, doesn't it? Right? No, no president is going to come and say, I'm going to shut down uh, the worship of the churches. You'd have, you'd have riots. But what can happen is that subtly and over time, our hearts are pulled from placing our ultimate hope in the kingdom of God to placing our ultimate hope in the United States. We begin to think that through our prosperity and through our power and through our military, that somehow that's what's going to bring peace and healing to the world. And it becomes an idol. No longer a good thing under subjection to the, to the ultimate loyalty. It becomes our ultimate loyalty. And in that, it corrupts us.
Sex has always been an easy substitute for God. This, uh, in Deuteronomy 12, when he goes and tells them that you're to tear down, burn their asherim with fire. The asherim, the asherah poles, were, were basically large phallic objects that represented the fertility gods. It was the elevation of sex to being the, the magic at the heart of life. I think we tend to think that we live in the midst of a, of a uniquely perverse age. Right? We tend to think that, that sex is somehow in our day and age a uniquely strong or uniquely wicked thing. That people in generations past weren't as tempted as we are to find our identity and our sexuality. They, they less than we were, were prone to find their meaning and their purpose and their joy in chasing after sexual pleasure wherever it could be found. And yet this, human beings are fundamentally the same. Right? These people that Israel found in the land that they entered are not different, a different species than us, than the same you and me that are inundated, inundated with a pull to find not just, our, not just happiness, but ultimate meaning and satisfaction and sexual expression and intimacy. And so the, as the people entered into the promised land, God said, don't fall for it. Don't fall for the easy-to-believe lie that sex is your savior. Tear down the Asherah poles. Devote yourself to me. Because sex is one of the most powerful, uh, ima- uh, powerful yearnings of the human heart, because it's so core to our image, so core to our relational nature, there's a powerful pull to become not just a good thing, but a God. Wealth and possessions getting more and more money to get bigger and better stuff is, some, in some ways, the default American religion. Consumerism uh, isn't just a part of our lives. It can become our lives that shapes us into the kind of people that believe that anything we have to sacrifice is worth it. No amount of hours are too many. No amount of time away is too much. If we can just get the job promotion to get the wealth to get more. Right? It seems barbaric to us to think of sacrificing your children at the altar of a God. And yet how many of us have sacrificed in some ways our children's childhood, our time with them, our intimacy with them, in the pursuit of the idol of wealth and prosperity. Right? These idols are enforced by their own liturgies, right? their own habits that make us into a certain kind of people. If you spend hours a day internet shopping, Do you think that doesn't change what kind of person you are at a basic level? You become the kind of person that lives to think about acquisition and what more you can get. And it shapes you over time, perhaps subtly, into its image. And then as we saw in the tragic story that we shared from 1963, pride of race and ethnicity can also become a god in a secular age. Right, believing, those men who planted that dynamite believed that being a white man, being white in the 1960s South, gave them their security, it gave them their value, it gave them their worth, and they were willing to kill anyone who threatened it, anyone who threatened their God. And still today, we can find pride in our culture, find in our, pride in our race, pride in our ethnicity, when we don't submit those things to the true God. 
And so in the midst of a world of competing gods, the true God calls us to worship. He calls us into this act where we participate in his love, where we receive his love. And where these other gods, where where loyalty to them, the worship of them, begins to lose its power over us. It begins to lose its grip on our hearts. We want to be the kind of church that's so rooted in our identity as the beloved of God, as God's worshiping people, that we no longer fall for the idols of our age. I want to do something a little bit different. Grab, if you would. You should have received a bulletin when you came in. Looks like this, opens this way. Grab that bulletin. The order of worship that you see in this bulletin, uh, it has some uniqueness. We can't say that, that all orders of worship are exactly the same. But there is a basic order, a basic logic that we've seen in Christian worship from about the second century after Christ. A way that Christians have shaped their worshiping life together in a way that roots them in the love of God for them and helps them to resist the disordered loves of their age and ours. And so we're just going to really briefly walk through our order of worship and talk a little bit about why we do what we do, how we do it. All right, let's do that. You'll notice in your bulletin, uh, it starts with God gathers us into his presence. The first movement of Christian worship is that we are invited that we are called by God to come to him in his presence. Now, yes, our service starts with the ancient and venerable Christian tradition of announcements. And so we start with with announcements, which isn't without purpose. It does show us that the line between the life out there and the life in here is not a hard and fast division. right? In a world that says what you do in church is church business and then what happens out there in the world is secular, We say, no, we come into worship, but we come in as a church that does most of our life out there. And so you'll hear about the life of our community, our life with our neighbors. You'll hear about the life that the church lives in the world through our announcements. You didn't know there was a a theological purpose behind that, but there is. But then God addresses us. He calls us to himself in worship. That's why when we get together, we stand and we receive the call to worship. This is a reminder that Christian worship starts at the initiative and invitation of God. That he speaks. And his spoken word isn't a word of judgment or accusation or exclusion. But it's a word of invitation. That he invites you to himself. We don't worship because we think it's a good idea. We don't worship because we happen to feel like it on a given Sunday morning. We worship because the God of the universe initiates towards us in love. Through the call to worship, he invites us. After that, we stand and we pray, and then we sing. We sing songs. This morning, we sang, come and welcome and sing to the king. You know, I'm reminded in those moments of how few places there are in my life where I am called and expected to show genuine, non-ironic emotion. Right? A place where you're invited to express joy, to express gladness. And to do so with a freedom and an ease about yourself. That's not, you're not winking at it. You're not thinking, oh, isn't that naive or silly? You're called to express joy and gladness to God. So we're called to express uh, ourselves in song. 
And then comes a moment in the service, uh, the confession of sin. This is, you might think, a bit of a downer that we do this every week, that if you come to Christ Church in town on a given Sunday, you're not going to be able to escape a moment where you are asked to admit to God and to the person next to you that you are a sinner, that you are someone who falls short. Just as uh, when, when addicts, whether it be alcohol, narcotics, anything, come to an AA meeting, you start with, hi, my name's Dave, and I'm an, I'm an alcoholic. Early on in our service, there's a moment where you have to, we don't, we, don't, we don't go around and you have to raise your hand and say, hi, my name's Batch, and I'm a sinner. Amen. Amen. <laughs> but there does come a moment where you have to admit the truth about yourself. In a world where most of our social interactions are shaped like job interviews, where you bring your you put your best foot forward, you bring your best resume, and you put it out there. Christian, the Christian worship service isn't a job interview where you bring your best self. It's more like the a doctor's office, where you have no vested interest in hiding your symptoms or pretending that things are better than they are. Where you go to the doctor, what are you supposed to do when you go to the doctor? You you tell them what it is. Right? You don't, you don't lie. You know, when he asks you, you know, are you, are you smoking tobacco products? You don't say no if it's yes. Right? If they ask you, how are you eating? You, you try to be honest. If they ask you where it hurts, you try to be honest. Because in honesty, it opens up the possibility for a cure. It opens up the possibility for healing. And so here we come together, not in, not in kind of gloomy introspection, but in hope of healing, we tell the truth. We confess. Have you thought about the formative impact it has on who you are as a person that once a week you admit that you're a sinner? That once a week you say, yeah, me, I'm a sinner. Hopefully that's not a practice that you just do in here and then forget how to do when you get in an argument with your spouse. Right? It's not something that you do in here and then forget how to do when your boss gives you a negative performance evaluation. But you are the kind of person who by habit has come to a point where you admit you're a sinner that should make you a little less thin-skinned in the world and a little more humble and a little more likely when somebody brings to you information about yourself and about your sin where you go, actually, you, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> right? You, you see the tip of the iceberg on my sin. You want to know about my sin? Pull up a chair. How much time do you have? Right? And so weekly, we become the kind of people who confess our sin, but it doesn't stop there. If we confessed our sin and then went home, that would be a sad day at church. But there comes another moment where you stand up and you look at me. And somebody, usually me, but another human being, raises their hand and tells you in no uncertain terms, God forgives you. God forgives you. He doesn't forgive you because I say it. He forgives you because of Jesus. We in our world do not know how. We don't know how to pardon a sinner. We know how to go through public rituals of shame and guilt. We know how to drag people through the mud. We don't know when to say or how to say, enough is enough. You are forgiven and you are set free. Go. I read an article uh, this week, not in a, it was in a, I think it was in the Times, it was about uh, Louis C.K. He was a comedian uh, who got 
caught up. He, he was, was guilty of, admitted as much, um, sexual impropriety towards women uh, in the midst of the, of the Me Too movement. And they, the, the article was about his, his proposed comeback. So he started performing other comedy clubs. And it was interesting to see somebody in the world wrestling through, do we forgive him or not? And I'm not here to weigh in on that. But what was interesting was that there was no, that where they went was, how bad was his crime? Well, it wasn't as bad as Harvey Weinstein. It wasn't as bad as Bill Cosby. It wasn't as bad as some of these others. So maybe he has to do less time in the doghouse. Right, well, maybe he's starting small, so maybe we let him do comedy clubs. We don't give him another TV show. Are we sure he's been sorry for long enough? And again, we're going we're gonna to park that illustration because we don't have time. <laughs> but we don't have, as a society, a way to grant absolution, a way to say, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. But in the gospel, in the church, we do. And it's not because of our penance. It's not because we're sorry enough for long enough or our good deeds have finally outweighed our bad deeds. It's because of the gospel. And so we give the assurance of pardon. Then we respond to God in gratitude. You're asked to to stand up and to believe and to sing with gratitude that you actually have been forgiven and to respond in love back to God. Anne Lamott, uh, in a wonderful little book, said that there's basically three types of prayer. The three prayers are help, thanks, and wow. And so we've said help. God, help me, I'm a sinner. And so now we respond with thanks and wow. Thank you, God, for your grace. We're astounded by your goodness. And so we respond. And then one of us stands up here, and we, and we usually it's Willie these days, and he says, the peace of the Lord be with you. And then what do you say? And also with you. And then you turn and you actually hug one another and shake hands. Right? In a violent and estranged world, in a world where some people over the given week are never touched in love. We live in a world where some people only either know the touch of being struck in anger, the touch of being uh, groped in lust, and we say, no, we're going to extend a holy touch, a touch that doesn't desire to hurt or to harm or to consume, but a touch that is purely about love and welcome. We do that bit about the peace because this is not the meet and greet. This is not the, the commercial break. This isn't a chance to get up and stretch your legs. This is a participation in the peace that Christ has won on the cross. The peace that he's forged between us and God and between us and one another. And so as awkward as it might be, we say, peace of the Lord be with you. And you say, and also with you. And then you participate in the peace of Christ that will one day flood this earth and take it over entirely. And it rains in this place for just a moment. So then after that, you sit down, but then you stand up again. Because we say, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We say, guys, be quiet and stand up because God is about to talk to you. Because the God of the universe is about to speak his truth into your life. And so we stand because we believe that what he says matters. We believe it calls us to action, that we're supposed to be attentive to it. And so we stand while the God of the universe speaks to us. And his speech has the power to challenge us and to bring us out of ourselves. It has the power to comfort us and to bring us grace. It has the power to change us. Right? In a world where oftentimes we live in our own echo chambers, 
where we listen to our own opinion, where all of our friends have very similar opinions to us, where we get on social media and we hear other friends that we've curated. We've already, you know, we've already got the people we disagree with out of our feed. And so we mostly hear the people we agree with. The voice of God speaks. And you might agree with it or you might not agree with it. It might challenge you or it might comfort you on a given day. But we stand to listen because God speaks. So we read his word. We try to preach from his word, explain his word. And then we respond through giving the offering. We sing and give an offering back to God. You know, for many, this comes as the most awkward moment uh, in Christian worship. Uh, I confess, for me as a pastor, for, for, for several years, it was awkward to stand up here and say, hey, guys, it's not too much trouble. Um, you know, I, need to, I got a family to feed, and so uh, we need to keep the lights on. So if it's not too much to ask, would you please give? We should never be apologetic about the fact that the God of the universe, the God who made every one of us, calls you to give some of what you've been given for the good of other human beings, for the good of his own kingdom, for the good of his church. This, in a a very real way, is the restoration of our humanity and our dignity. To say you don't live to consume, you don't live just to get, but you're called to generosity. You're called to love your neighbor and not just yourself. And so we respond through giving. Then we offer our prayers to God. He's spoken to us, and so we return and pray to him. We believe that he speaks uh, and that we believe that he listens when we speak. In a fascinating uh, development, a lot of the the Protestant churches uh, in Germany, after the Protestant Reformation, when their altars were once decorated with usually a crucifix, and they began to take down the crucifixes, believed that they weren't a faith, you know, for all sorts of reasons, uh, didn't believe that it was right to image Jesus in a worship place. One of the things that often took their place was an image of the city that the church uh, worshipped in behind the altar. So that when the priest broke the bread, when he offered the prayers, he was interceding for the city. The city came into the church, and then the church offered the city back up to God. And so we do that when we pray. We lift our community back up to God. We offer our our own church's needs. We offer our own nation's needs, our own neighborhood's needs, and we bring the city to God in prayer. And then we come to the sacraments, baptism into the Lord's table. This really is the center of our worship, our worship service. This is the place that we remember that the Christian worship service is fundamentally about communion with God. It's about his love for us, his sacrifice for us. I had a friend who at one point was, was struggling with his faith and was wandering away. And what kept him coming back, he said, I, I, I can't understand sermons anymore. They they don't get through my mind. They don't affect my heart. But I need to be at a church where every week I'm going to be given the sacraments, where I'm going to be given the broken body and shed blood of Jesus because somehow it gets around my doubts and I can taste and I can touch and I can remember that I have have union with Christ. I have the love of God. Then we sing again and we end with a benediction, a reminder that God's presence and his grace and his goodness follows us out uh, into the world. We began with a call to worship and acknowledgement that we come from a world in which we're engaged with God. And we end with a benediction, a reminder that God sends us into the world with his love, with his presence, and with his grace to be carriers of that grace to our neighbors. So that's what we do. That's what we do every single Sunday. Uh, If you wonder, uh, I wonder what Christ Church in town is doing this Sunday. That, right? That's, that's, That's what we do.
in the hopes that over time we become the kind of people who don't just say it with our mouths, but who really do believe that we are the beloved of God and who really are able in time to order our lives around that reality and to carry that love into the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do lift our lives to you as a sacrifice of worship. Lord, we ask that you would so shape us through our singing, through our praying, through our giving, through our coming to your table, through our listening to your word. Lord, that through this, you would shape us in the crucible of your love. That the love of other things would recede in our hearts and we would be people who know our love, who know your love, and who love you and our neighbor in return. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.